0: A week gone by saw both a transport strike and the opening of the Dublin Horse Show. Two events which precisely echo what was happening in the city 100 years ago when the Dublin knockout began. In 1913, the tramway strike by Jim Larkin's union was called on the morning of August the 26th. And within days, it led to a general lockout of union workers by 400 employers led by businessman William Martin Murphy the man who owned the trams and the independent. The lockout affected some 20,000 workers and ran for over six months before ending in defeat for the union. Tomorrow evening, a new six-part radio documentary series entitled Citizens Lockout 1913-2013 begins here on RTÉ Radio 1 and I'm joined in studio by four of the historians who feature in that series to talk a little bit about Dublin at that time and about the personalities involved in the lockout. They are Porrick Yates, author of Lockout Dublin 1913 and a member of the 1913 committee. Mary Daly Professor of History and Archives at University College Dublin. Kieran Wallace, historian at Trinity College in Dublin and Anne Matthews, writer and historian at NUI Maynooth. You're all very welcome indeed and good morning to you. Um, I suppose the first question is that the, it's, the the lockout is represented in some way as a struggle between two personalities but perhaps the best way to understand it is to paint a picture of life in the city of Dublin and Mary, it's it's a tale of two cities. Isn't
1: it? It, it's very much a tale of two cities, yes. Uh, it, was, it was actually a d- deeply divided city it was divided politically, it was divided uh, in class terms and it was divided in religious terms as well and they, they don't completely overlap, but they overlap quite a bit. I mean, um, the city was quite poor, it was a tenement city and we can talk about that more. Uh, the city boundaries on the south side ended at the canal. Uh, Mines and Pembroke and where we are today would have been independent The uh, and that had been so. Clontarf uh, and Drumcondra had only joined the city in 1900 uh, and Kilmainham. But basically the more elite uh, residents uh, stayed outside because they they didn't want the politics of a nationalist corporation, which was murky in many ways, uh, indeed itself. Uh, a lot of them were tenement owners, for example, but they didn't want to pay the higher taxes towards the cost of public health and social housing and... and and But they were prepared
0: the like. to avail of the services, such as well, they were, well, because they were going they were. in and out I mean, to they, they would uh, the have city done to work every day. There.
1: I mean, for example, you know, the, the Dublin Castle civil servants, a lot of them would have lived in Pembroke, or some of them would have lived actually out along what we'd now, on the tra- train line, a lot of them would have lived out along on the South Coast as well, um, so uh, it, it, in other words, they, they took the jobs and the banks, the insurance companies, and it, you're very much that kind of financial, financial public service economy, the, uh, doctors as well, uh, rather than an industrial economy. But I think one point to bear in mind is that the property tax, the rates, would have been quite significant at the stage. You know, this is quite a high tax, and the lo- local authorities everywhere in the UK were were bearing the cost of services for things like health, welfare and housing. So if you could manage to... Correspondingly,
0: get your... income tax would not have been anything like... Oh, income tax 1900s, was relatively
1: low at the time. Now, yeah. But more to the point, the central government was not paying the cost of most of those kind of services. I think that's the key thing. If you lived in a wealthy area... Your tax base, your taxation would be lower because you wouldn't have to pay for all those things if you lived in a poor area. Eh, the reverse, and and so this was actually pretty important mm. so a uh, location was quite important uh, but there was also as I said the political division the, the, these were unionist I mean Ruth mines had a Protestant majority population up to about 1901 and I think a lot of the a lot of the Catholic population there would have been the servants in fact I mean Actually you know,
0: elected a unionist in 1918
1: absolutely 19- oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was a you know this was a this was a strong Pembroke was a bit more mixed you've got rough Rath- you've got Ringsend, Irish town which, which which will have working class do- you know do- dock related workers but 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 it is a very divided city, and. Bear in mind, Home Rule is there. There's the polarisation over over the union, and I, I wouldn't underestimate that at the time. It's it's part. There's a, there, there. There is also you know the story of the industrial relations as well, which you know I mean, Porg might want to go into with you or something, like that, which is is a slightly okay. different one.
0: We'll go into that in a few minutes. But Ciaran uh, uh, Wallace, th- as Anne was, uh, uh, Mary was saying, Dublin was a city of these little principalities. Absolutely. Why did that matter so much?
2: Well, following on from what Mary was saying, it did depend on like, the, the level of services you had and if you were living in prosperous Rath mines or the leafy suburbs of Clyde Road or whatever, you enjoyed a far better sort of standard of public services. But the city centre, the problem with city centre, suffered from was these thousands of slum dwellings and tenements. The city couldn't fix those because of the, the flip side of the coin of having wealthy suburbs. You had a poor city centre. The city could only raise taxes to fix the problem the city wasn't famous for being uh, uh, efficient or particularly keen on fixing the problem, but even had a desire to, its actual tax base was so poor. So was in 2013, it terms, it's a bit like Detroit. Everybody has gone to the suburbs. Uh, exactly so. And so the, the people left in the middle are the poor who aren't paying much tax, but have the most problems and need the most funding. So the city had struggled to have a greater Dublin for years, but was never allowed. And this kind of fed into the... the this. And corruption and lack of ability, lack of desire to change fed into this sort of hotbed of, of, of tenement, uh, concentration of tenement dwellings.
0: And, Pori, tell us about the, the makeup of the city's workforce at that time.
3: Uh, well, I think you've mentioned the bus strike we've just had. Uh, there are parallels, I think they're very worrying parallels, because you'd had a, nearly a century of de skilling, and de skilling means loss of education, loss of income. One of the reasons why Dublin was one of the largest recruiting centres for the British Army at that time, was simply 25% of the population didn't have a trade. Yeah. So they they, they had very few options in front of them. Those that did were lucky enough to work, often were in casual employment. Uh, if you look at, say, the Port and Docks Board, you'll see uh, their name book with all the manual labourers in it, and you'll see people being employed, discharged, employed, discharged, literally from, uh, from year to year. Uh, very few rights. So when someone like Larkin came along, his great achievement was to unite people, and uh, the, the most resonant, the most important thing about 1913, which overshadows everything else, is the issue of collective bargaining and union recognition. And that, ironically enough, is something we still have, mm-hmm. haven't have grappled with uh, today. So you had this huge workforce um, unskilled British army emigration, the main way out. So lots lots uh, of skilled disc- labour but there're also
0: lots of unemployment
3: as well. The, we said was no unemployment benefit. Yeah. Um, so there a, couldn't as be Mary said as the, many unemployed The, in that the sense. central government I mean the British government were beginning to bring in reforms. In fact I would argue that we wouldn't have had a lockout if we hadn't been part of the United Kingdom because uh, the British government had just brought in unemployment benefit. Mm. And the, the lock- I don't think it's any coincidence, when the really big heave came in 1913, it was at a time when most workers had actually reached the point where they had enough contributions to get unemployment benefit and that unions also issued strike pay. So you've got to look at the social infrastructure mm. of what was changing and most of the progressive things that were happening were happening as a result of British mm. government intervention. Uh, as as Ciarán says, we had a very corrupt city administration, um, very divided, very poor, very incompetent. So, uh, in a way, Larkin was part of that breath of fresh air as were other people like the suffrage movement, uh, radical nationalists and so on. These were trying to change the situation.
0: And, uh, but, and Matthews, besides being a social historian you actually have a link, you have a family link to the Dublin tenements, don't you?
4: Yes, my, mu- my grandmother um, my mother was a child as I call a child of the Lockhart. Um they lived in Marlborough Street, she was born in 1909 and my granny and um, my granny, granddad, and her sisters, two sisters, lived in Marlborough Street and they experienced, as a child, she experienced the severe deprivation of the lockout.
0: And so what were the tenements like? Does, I mean, do you have a, just, can you describe them to me? Can you give us a sense of, of what life would have been like there, of the sounds, the smells, all of that?
4: Well, the sounds and the smells, the, the 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 buildings... I was at the tenement experience yesterday and I highly recommend people go see it. Where is um, that? The actors were wonderful. 14 Henrietta Street. Right, they've Which taken is, What was a, was tenement. a tenement, yeah. yeah. And the, the second part, if you like, when the actors uh, take over, it's it's absolutely a wonderful exploration of how it affected people's lives. But they lived in, uh, for example, 15 Lord Dominic Street was an 18-room house with a family in each room. Um, there was over 100 people living in the house. There was just one toilet in the backyard, the smell, um, the smell of decay, mm. the smell of mm. excrement. Um, women, I've been reading this in the last few weeks, women didn't use the toilets. So they obviously used chamber pots and um, the children just used the stairs wherever was available to them. So the stink was almighty. And then there was there um, somebody
0: who used to come around and used to actually collect the, uh, the proceeds, if you like, of the chamber pots and carry them that's, out.
4: That's an account given by Sean O'Casey, a very vivid account given by Sean O'Casey when he lived in a cottage in East Wall. Now, I don't know if they did that in the tenements, but he lived in, the, in this very small cottage in East Wall and they, they would come in and come out the back. So that account is from East Wall. I've never mm. come across an account... Mm of that applying to a tenement yeah. and I don't think it did yeah. and neither how, have I <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: How, d- how did these tenements arise Kieran? because at one point places like Henrietta Street would have been uh, where the
2: uh, you know the, 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 the well the well appointed lived absolutely I mean Henrietta Street being the classic example and it's the perfect place to have the tenement experience because it went from being the height of fashion to being the depth of decay and um, why? Well, they came about, through, I think, through the Act of Union in, of 1800. So, I mean, how far back do you want to go? But the, the sort of when power goes out, money goes with it, and the money fled the city. Um, there was no need for landed gentry to come up to the city for a parliamentary season in Dublin anymore. So they went to London. They just skipped it over to London. Um, at the same time, these buildings were lying idle. They were being sold off and being subdivided. But it's there it's the kind of complicated... Um, property ownership stuff which i think contributed to the survival of the of the tenements where you might have you know i might own five tenement buildings in scattered in different places but i might have them sort of farmed out to other sort of sublessers, and then they'd be farming out the, the collection of the rent to other people so even if the city tried to improve tenements and said you must put in let's say you know better uh, facilities for hygiene or you must you know have you've, you've got overcrowding in this building who do you proceed against? Is it the tenant? Is it the person they pay the rent to? Is it the person that the rent goes up the line to? So to actually follow through the line of sort of ownership and the money flow made it, a, I think, a problem trying to try and fix the, the situation. But
3: the, yeah. there was yeah. another problem, yeah. which was that, you know, the compensation. These were landlords. I mean, seventeen of the eighty councillors were land, slum landlords, and the compensation system was: if you closed the building, you had to give the landlord ten years' loss of rent uh, as compensation, and you had to give the tenant six months big difference, but still a lot of money. So you had a, an incentive not to close mm. buildings. The two buildings that collapsed in Church Street, Church, Church Street uh, yeah. on the 2nd of mm. September uh, had actually been passed by a dangerous building inspector only a couple of weeks beforehand. Now, he said it was subject to infrastructure being put in place. That was allegedly put in place. The building still collapsed and mm. seven people died.
1: Yeah. Uh, can I link what Paul mm. was talking about, the workforce and the tenement, because I do think they do link very closely together. I mean, the other reality is let's say you built a proper building, either modern or a refurbished tenement in the centre of Dublin, and you charged a rent that covered your cost, no profit, it it would be too high for the Mm -hmm. average Mm. casual labourer to pay. uh, The rents they paid were low because that's all they could afford to pay. Uh, And you do get schemes around the place. You clear it out and you put up something better. And the people who are cleared out cannot afford to move into it. Uh, the people who move into the uh, artisan's dwellings or anything else are people who have secure jobs. They're, in the post- they're postmen, they're in Guinness. They're, they're somewhere where they get... They're their, their junior messengers and something in Dublin Castle. They're people who get a wage at the end of the week. They're in secure employment. They're not casual dealers They because they, they wouldn't be allowed to have carts in the back and use mm-hmm. clothing for sale. You know, the women, the street traders and so on like that. So, bluntly, you come back to... Um, I mean, everything they've said about ownership and everything is correct and structures, but it's the only thing that they could afford, that they could afford uh, having a roof over their head. You couldn't move them to the suburbs because they didn't know where the jobs would be. They had to be close to the docks. They had to keep their options open work-wise. So we'd say they were all moved out to live in Kimmage or out in Crumlin or something like that. Uh, Transport was expensive. So So they didn't have what we have have nowadays, choices. They didn't have choices. And bear in mind as well, uh, under the legislation at the time, there was only a limit to the amount of a subsidy that that you could put on a house. You it subsidized rents were by local authorities or mda it didn't exist. There was only a minimal subsidy that you were allowed to legally. Por- so it's a,
0: it's a vicious circle. Paul so. can can you sketch out the the sequence of events then that led to the lockout in August of 1930?
3: Yeah, um, in the previous 6 months there'd been a series of strikes in the in the city and in the county where Larkin had secured increases between 20 and 25% for the members. Uh, And then you had the tram strike. Uh, The tramway company was run by William Martin Murphy, the most successful Catholic nationalist businessman of his day. He was president, the first Catholic president of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce. He was the founder of the Dublin Employers Federation. He'd been involved in smashing unions elsewhere. Ironically enough, Archbishop Walsh, the Catholic Archbishop, and the Lord Mayor were putting in place a a mediation system, which Lachlan would have been delighted with because it meant that the increases he got elsewhere in the city could now be extended to uh, other groups without having strikes and the employers would have been happy with because they were on the run and this was a chance of containing the situation. But during his period Murphy was actually out sick. Murphy comes back, horrified to find Larkin now recruiting in his companies like the Independent and the Tramway Company so he calls a meeting at midnight uh, on July the 19th. Uh, he sacks six suspected members of the transport union to set the tone. Uh, he gives a half day's pay for every man who turns up and a cup of cocoa and a sandwich and tells him you can be in Larkin's union you can work for me but you can't do both and then you walk home and you have to have the meeting at midnight so it doesn't interfere with the tram schedules mm-hmm. so the tramway workers are under fierce pressure uh, the, all the evidence that, we, and it's all circumstantial is that Larkin didn't want to bring them out they forced him to because he Murphy had sacked nearly all of them and he said if you don't bring us out we'll leave the union and we'll denounce you as a con because you said you get us pay and conditions We're losing our jobs. So, uh, the key, I think, was William Partridge, one of Larkin's key people, came back from the powerhouse, the tramway powerhouse, and said, The tramway, the engineers will come out if any of the trams stop. So, uh, uh, that cripples the whole
0: system. Exactly.
3: The trouble is that uh, Murphy's intelligence system was too good. Next morning, the trams stop. Partridge goes down to the powerhouse and the standby relief crews literally standing beside the existing workers to take over, so they don't come out so suddenly the tram strike is a damn squib and um, what transformed the situation from a local dispute was Bloody Sunday, there was rioting there was the disturbances because people were frustrated the strike wasn't working uh, lots of workers and their wives were being In case
0: arrested. people are confused, we're not talking about the Bloody so, Sunday, obviously, no, of 1920, no, we're talking about the famous protest in O'Connell Street. Which, by
3: the way, will be commemorated this year on the Saturday, which is, it's a theological argument, it's the 31st of August <laughs> versus the Sunday. Sunday this year is on the 1st <laughs> of September.
0: And you would get <laughs> Russians, by the way, who would say the first Bloody Sunday was in 1905. for well, that's another well, story you, entirely. But they're
3: right, because Kastimir Markovich. Uh, <laughs> Constance Markovich's husband was the man who wrote to the paper saying, "This is like what happened in St. Petersburg in okay. 1905." That's bloody so stuff talking it's, about. Bloody <laughs> <Sunday>. yeah, <okay. laughs> well, it's important. Move on. Well, it's important for one reason, and dates are important. The 31st of um, of uh, August 1913. You have bloody Sunday. You have hundreds of people injured. You have all the newspapers in Britain, not in Ireland now, but in Britain. War to war police brutality. Mm. September first, the, the TUC meet in Manchester. And all those delegates are reading their daily sketch and their daily mirror, and they give Larkin a blank check. They say, this is about union recognition, this is a war to the death, um, and we'll support you to the hilt. And there was no better man than Larkin to avail of that. So suddenly what had been a local tramway dispute has become a huge UK dispute about the right to be in the union and the right to mm. collect the bargain.
0: And, of course, uh, even though there was support from the UK, this was poverty heaped upon poverty. And Maud Gon's women's network in Nina Heron, including abbey actress Helena Maloney, fed inner-city school children and uh, Countess Markievicz, as you mentioned, set up a food kitchen. We've got a clip here from the UCD archive where we hear a 13-year-old, Paddy Butner, uh, recalling how he ran into the Countess.
1: And I remember going over to get us, and my father was a, a hairdresser in a barber shop but he had a jug it used to hold a gallon of boiling water he had this when he'd be given the shampoo and this was the only jug we had and i brought this over And when i went over the girl there with a woman there molly hoyland was her name she was a citizen army woman and she was i was with her in Stevens green afterwards she said what do you think you are coming to take it all and the countess heard it the count this is the first time I saw the countess, really. And she looked at me and she said, Come here, Sonny and she took that jug and she filled it up. <laughs>
0: Uh, There would, uh, however, be a certain amount of... um, There would be opposing views, shall we say, on the role of the Countess in all of this. Certainly, if you were to uh, read anything that Shona Casey ever said about uh, Countess Markievicz, uh, you wouldn't have thought of her as particularly generous soul or generous spirit. What what are your thoughts on Countess Markievicz and the the lockout? There's
4: Countess Markievicz and and then there's the mod gone in 1913. Um, Countess Markievicz Markievicz, um, was given charge of the food kitchen for three weeks. The TUC gave her £300. They bought a cauldron. It was chaotic, and James Connolly closed it down after three weeks, and in November opened a new food kitchen with a committee of four people, including Shauna Casey, Delia Larkin, and a lady called Grace Nail, and a man called Patrick Lennon. And they fed the children in Liberty Hall every morning from November until early February. They fed about 1,000 children. Um, Maud Ghosn um, was involved in 1911 with the formation, with Alina Maloney and other women of Indiana Heron, with the formation of the Lady School Dinner Committee. Um, they had been feeding children in two schools, about 600 children per day, um, for since 1911. Now, this was being replicated all over the city by all kinds of religious denomination, who were also feeding poor children. But in 1913, um, Maud Ghosn came and went to, to, to France, and then her committee... Um, received money from the Archbishop's Relief Fund in order to continue feeding the children in the two schools. But the, they fed still the five or six hundred every day, whereas the other religious communities altogether were feeding between three and four thousand children every day. So, um, while did the children gone,
0: actually fare better during the strike? Were they eating better yes, during the strike?
4: Yes, they had the, well, those, those, the children of workers who were in the union only qualified for the food in Liberty Hall but nonetheless they they could have breakfast in Liberty Hall and they would in school they would have the the, the dinner um, and it was free Mm. and the parents could go to the penny dinners locally known as the stew house and during the lockout this was funded by by funds coming into the archbishop's fund so people received their food for free so the children were they still weren't properly fed as we would understand it today but they were they were fed better than they would have been Mm. and even the children whose fathers were not in the union would affect venture the the, lunch. It may be yeah. the fact they'd be too yeah. young
3: to go to school, yeah. but the infant mortality rates did go up quite uh, rapidly during yes. the lockout yes. and the infectious disease went mm. up. And I think also a lot of the and Why specifically
0: during the lockout? Why, but the why problem, was
4: that? Can, can I can I go yeah, okay. On. Um when 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 people are living on a margin, um and they are, and the people in the tenements, they li- they rely on the little hookster shop, you know the hookster shop is for the little bits and pieces in the bar of soap and um when the lockout comes people have absolutely no money maybe they have strike pay they try have they have to keep the room they're pawning everything and they mm. cannot afford to buy soap yeah so they cannot afford to be clean they're just about fed mm-hmm. and they're wearing clothes that are probably lice ridden and yeah. yeah. um, the charities and the unions are giving them clean clothes and new clothes but nonetheless they are not able to wash because they have no soap it's as be- that happened in mm. war of independence mm. as well Typhus spread yeah. like you can believe. It happened during the famine. A lot, our, a, lot, yeah. a
1: lot of it is that they, you yeah. know, soap is seen as a yeah. like, more of all, independence. And, I mean, and also yeah. heating the water. You yes. know, yeah. Yeah. keeping yeah. the fire yeah. going yeah. to heat yeah. the water yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. to wash yeah. Yeah. them. So yeah. yeah. So TB
0: yeah. was a particular mm. problem, wasn't it? Well, TB was a particular t- problem t- anyway.
1: TB was t- TB in Ireland peaks. The epidemic in Ireland is late, and it's coming. It's it's only beginning to peak in the early 20th century in Ireland, mm-hmm. and it's it, it, there's only only consciousness of it at this stage, and. Uh, it is it is an acute problem. I mean, go back to Anne's description of the tenements, mm. and you know, mm. if you've if you've somebody who's got tuberculosis, uh, how can you isolate them? It's it's an infectious disease. Mm. Uh, yeah. uh, there were no proper state provisions for sanatoria or anything mm. like that. Mm. Uh, so, and uh, I mean, the only way to, to deal with TB at this stage would be to take somebody who was infectious and remove mm. them from the source from, from 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 contact with others. But there's no resources to deal with that. So, I mean, mortality in Dublin. Uh, at every level is dreadful and i think mm. i think we need to emphasize that uh, infant mortality in 1900 dublin just 1890s dublin doesn't stick out infant mortality is improving in other cities by 1914 dublin is not improving in fact infant mortality in dublin is a disgrace until the late 1940s oh, but,
0: okay sorry yeah uh, except for
1: infection
4: yeah. Can white children out? Absolutely, they'll yeah. spread. Yeah. Um, now it's reductionist,
0: I know, Dirt. to yeah. describe mm. this in any sense or in any way as a confrontation between Murphy and Larkin. That's mm. the way it has been personalised. Let's just focus a little bit on those two individuals, even though they were, um, you know, they were movements behind them, and uh, it, it's not as simple as a confrontation between uh, Murphy and Larkin. Murphy uh, owned uh, the independent uh, newspapers and was an inveterate, apparently, writer to mm. his own. Mm. Newspaper, and uh, we've got a clip from the series. This is Barry McGovern reading one of those letters from William Martin Murphy to the Irish Independent in uh, January 1913. Dear Sir, the money to be spent on the gallery would go a long way to feed the necessitous school children, which the corporation have power to do, but there is no money and no special meeting for such a purpose. French pictures are apparently more precious in the eyes of our democratic corporation than the provision of food for the hungry children of the slums. W.M. Murphy, Dartrey. Uh, no, people might be a little bit surprised to hear William Martin Murphy uh, being so concerned about the, the children of the slums. What's the gallery that he's talking about? Explain that to me, here The
2: gallery is, um, at this stage, in this year, by a complete coincidence unrelated to the lockout, um, Hugh Lane, who donated uh, 30 very famous Impressionist paintings to the city, he donated them as a gift to the city to make a gallery of municipal gallery of modern art on condition that the city build a permanent premises. And to, to build this permanent premises was proving to be a problem. The city hadn't got the money. We already see how poor the city was. But they decided to come up with a clever idea of building the gallery across the River Liffey. They'd removed the much hated Haypenny Bridge, which everybody despised as being an ugly iron eyesight, uh, eyesore, Um. Well, partly because it was covered in sort of hoardings and advertising billboards and so forth. They were going to replace that with a gallery that spanned the river. And this then became a bone of contention in, in the lockout year because they were going to spend so much money on it. Murphy's being a bit disingenuous about saying they should be feeding the children of the poor and, and, you know, we should build, you know, respectable housing. He wasn't known as a great friend of respectable housing, you know, outside this point. But Murphy hated the idea of the gallery because again it brought. I think he's a fascinating man but certainly his view of a future Home Rule Ireland this Home Rule is coming down the line there's a very sort of fraught time in Irish social and political life he sees a Home Rule Ireland coming down the line as going to be a modern business type thing not this sort of effete, artistic, creative, imaginative kind of Ireland which the gallery for him and all its supporters represented. So very different world views, if you like. Very yeah. much an Irish nationalist, though. Oh, yeah, I mean, a yeah, yeah, Former
0: yeah. Home Rule yeah. MP, Absolutely. somebody
2: who, for example, what did he turn down a knighthood in 1907? Yes, 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 in line with, I think, Irish Parliamentary Party kind of uh, procedure that you should turn down knighthoods. Not every, not all of them did, but mm. having organised the, the um, Great White Exhibition in uh, Pembroke, um, he... Typically, in other cities, the person who organised these things would get a knighthood, and he was offered one and and sort of politely declined it. So I think he was a committed nationalist, but his view of what nationalism was going towards was business and international trade and using empire links and global links to trade. And so he saw Dublin as being a centre that needed to be improved as a centre of business. Um, i think this ties in again with yeah. pay rates for workers and all this basically there was an economic model that he thought would succeed in home rule and in a way that goes to the core of the lockout yeah. but the the gallery was kind of uh, the people who supported this idea of the gallery where labor where shin fein um, where sort of the artistic kind of the Gaelic revival set if you like they, report, mm. they support the the you Anglo-Irish mm. uh, well this is uh, except for except for um, uh, Alderman uh, Tom Kelly who was like staunch uh, um, like advanced nationalist and Labour mm. Sinn Féin um, and he was uh, solidly he was like up to almost the last moment he was the, the strongest supporter behind it so the gallery had this interesting kind of lightning rod effect mm. of attracting strange coalitions mm. yeah, uh, yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. people supporting it yeah. um, and uh, Jim Larkin then,
0: well, uh, Porig, a well, difficult
3: yeah, man. Well, yes, I mean he was a, a force of nature to quote Countess Markievich, um who I must say I think gets a raw press because I, I'm old enough I knew quite a lot of people who knew Countess Markovich when I was young and without exception, men and women, they thought whatever her performance in the food kitchen they thought she was the best thing since sliced bread and they really did. So I don't anyone who knew her, who worked for her Thought she was wonderful, but uh, I'm just putting that in for it's something But uh, you but,
0: also there's, there's a, yeah. a connection, if you like, to yeah. to Larkin as well. I think your father heard Larkin speak.
3: Yeah, but he didn't compare him with Hitler. <laughs> the man who compared him with Hitler was Tom Johnson, uh, <laughs> the Labour, crosswise, the Labour leader. The Labour leader. Uh, Johnson was in Munich in early 1930s, and he he wrote a letter. I think it was to Bill O'Brien, but another friend of Larkin's. Uh, the many one, you know, he collected cohorts of enemies, but. Uh, um, Johnson said, I've just uh, been to this meeting and I, I heard this speaker who, who uh, bore a remarkable resemblance in his uh, performance with our old friend Jim Larkin. Well, I suppose
0: uh, one demagogue bears a striking resemblance but, to but another
3: the, demagogue. The point is was though, was it, it wasn't... Because if you read some of Larkin's speeches, that uh, Total rubbish, a total gobbledygook. Yeah, they are. When, when, but when he, at the high points in his career, like in the Asquith <laughs> Tribunal, he's brilliant. I mm-hmm. mean, he's a towering mm-hmm. orator, and this was an age of oratory. Uh, and people like Lloyd George, if you read their speech, they're one cliche after another. It was yeah. obviously the interaction with the public. Mm-hmm. It wasn't what they said that mattered. Mm-hmm. It was how they said it. My father would have heard him. My father would have served in Italy in the Second World War. And, like, I grew up in Britain mainly, and uh, if you met men of a certain age and they had a a good knowledge of classical music, a picky Italian opera, and they had strong left-wing opinions. You could be nearly certain they served in Italy in the Second World War. So he said that Larkin was like an opera singer, that he had this power to project. It. One of the reasons we don't have a, a recording of Larkin's voice, ironically enough, is that uh, whenever anyone brought a microphone to him, he said, I don't need that. And he pushed it away and he'd start oh, speaking. Yeah. And and it's ironic but that we don't have uh, the recording yeah. of probably the greatest orator of the 20th century.
0: Somebody who is a great speaker mm. is not necessarily yeah. a great organiser. Was he a little yeah. bit more shambolic? No, on, no I
3: don't. does I, I, I this, this view that Connolly was a hard-headed yeah. organiser I think that's total rubbish. If you look at Connolly's career, every organisation he ever joined either split or went bankrupt. When he was acting General Secretary of the Transport Union in 1916, the membership was somewhere between three and 5,000. We don't know the membership because there's no records. Uh, he was a hopeless organiser, I think. Brilliant intellect, great propagandist, drove the really drove the engine that led to 1916. But no, I, I think uh, Larkin was actually a very good organiser. He's the only man in the, in the history of this country who set up two breakaway unions, each of which became the, the two biggest unions in the country. So that says something.
0: Uh, you know? Finally, Anne, was the lockout, was it a tragic failure? Were there any winners at all other than the employers? And Were, were, they, were the employers even winners?
4: Well, they were, no, it was, a, it, was, it was a defeat all round in, in terms of uh, the men, women, children, people picking up their lives, uh, trying to get their lives back on track, um, they found themselves. In, in, at the beginning of it all, they were promised that they would be lifted out of the gutter, and when it was older, over, they found themselves in a the gutter worse than the one that they had been found in, yeah. mm. um, and and that's the reality. Mm-hmm. Mary? Can I just say I do think Dublin
1: employers—I mean, if you look at the Asquith Tribunal, the, the, the Dublin employers come out as a, a, at a much lower level mm. than was deemed acceptable in the United Kingdom at the mm. time. I don't think Dublin employers ever tr- ever treated workers quite as badly again. I'm not saying there was a great reform, but I think it did set, a, you know, a, a bottom bar, line, yeah. and things did were were somewhat better afterwards.
0: Okay. Well, uh, thank you all. A quick
3: commercial. There will be a commemoration. It'll be on Saturday at twelve thirty in O'Connell Street at the Larkin Memorial this is next this Saturday is it, no no this is the Saturday, 31st 31st of no, August,
0: August right which is not Sunday the 31st no. of so bloody Saturday basically yes yes, yes. okay uh, on the 30th of August we'll find out a bit more, more about those personalities uh, we're going to be talking to the descendants of many of the people involved in the lockout in the meantime my thanks to my panel Paula Gates Mary Daly Anne Matthews and Kieran Wallace the series Citizens Lockout 1913 to 2013 an Athena media production uh, made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Begins tomorrow at six o'clock on rte radio one and there's a web page on the rte site for the project